On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with me, Scott Radley, sitting in, we are going to be chatting about a new study from McMaster that says kids, younger kids under 10, are not super carriers of the coronavirus. This, if you think about it, has significant potential impacts on what we do about sending kids back to school. The kids are not the ones who are spreading it. It's the adults. Does this change what we think about the fall? We're going to be chatting with Lisa Tomitis, who is the head coach of the Canadian women's basketball team, should have been in Tokyo this week. The Olympics were supposed to be on. Yeah, we know they're not. You're not watching on TV. They're not on right now. We're going to talk to her, catch up with her about what she's missing right now. And in one of the strangest things you're going to hear, a computer has generated, artificial intelligence has generated new Led Zeppelin music, sort of. It has taken Robert Plant's voice and Led Zeppelin sound and created new music. Is this where we're heading? Artificial intelligence now instead of actual artists creating music? Take a listen. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML Hump Day. Hump Day means we are getting there. We are on the crest of the hill and descending towards the long weekend. It is good news. Hope you were listening to Bill Kelly's show with Greg Brady filling in earlier this morning because there was a lot of talk about what happens with the school year. We're now, we are told, in the 11th hour, we've got to figure something out. We, got, we don't know what's going to happen yet. Uh, there may be discussion at Doug Ford's press conference today at 1 o'clock or in the days very soon to follow, we think. But there's all kinds of discussion and disagreement and uncertainty and everything else about what do we do with kids? What do we do with kids? How do we get them back to school? Is this going to be a problem? Is it safe? Is it a disaster? We don't know. Well, a lot of people don't know anyway. Most people don't know. I don't know who knows. But there is a new study out from McMaster that, especially in light of that discussion this morning on Bill's show, is very fascinating and very timely. The new McMaster review of COVID-19 research, and it says children will not, will not become super spreaders or cause a spike in infections if they return to school. Now, you as w- know as well as I do, this is going to cause some people to say, oh, come on, yes, it will. Well, seemed like a perfect time then to bring on one of the people behind this study to let them explain it rather than me try to interpret it. Uh, Dr. Sarah Neil Stramko is an assistant professor at McMaster. She is also with McMaster's Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact. She joins me now. Dr. Neil Stramko, thanks for doing this today. Appreciate it. Hi there, Scott. Thanks for having me on this morning. Well, you know as well as I do, I'm guessing, especially because you've probably heard some of this, uh, any study that says children are not probably going to be at the epicenter is going to cause some people to say, wait a second, sure they are. We know they are. Can you walk us through very briefly before we get into that, how you came to these conclusions, how you reached this determination? Absolutely. So we saw very early on uh, in the pandemic, just a huge amount of research that's being published on a daily uh, hour by hour basis related to all things COVID. Um, so early on, our team at the National Collaborating Center for Methods and Tools here at McMaster um, has been conducting a rapid evidence service where we take questions from public health decision makers across the country, search all of the available scientific studies that have been released, uh, take a look at them. We critically appraise them to find which ones are the highest quality, and we bring them together so we can get a comprehensive look at what's the best available evidence that we have to date related to uh, the topics of interest. So we did 
This review of childhood transmission originally back in May when there were many fewer studies available, uh, and this is our third update. So it's the best available evidence that we have from around the world up until July 20th. And what we see consistently across studies is that children are not likely to be major sources of COVID-19 transmission. And when we do see clusters of infection that involve children, the infection is primarily transmitted through adults in home and community settings rather than uh, children within the school. So we see that in reports uh, from jurisdictions prior to lockdown. So when there were children that uh, were in school or daycare settings before lockdown measures were put into place, and also from places that have reopened following lockdown measures. So I would say that uh, it's also important to know this is the evidence is primarily in younger children. And older children, when we get into high school, they seem like they transmit more uh, similarly to adults, but within younger children, primarily under the age of 10, it looks like there's very limited transmission in those groups. You referred to uh, all the studies that have been released. Now, of course, COVID is still relatively new. We don't have a lot of time to um, to allow these things to play out. Does that raise red flags? Does that make it a concern? Or because we're simply talking about the transmission, we don't need to be looking at eight or 10 or 20 or 50 years? No, I think it's a really important point that there is new evidence being available, becoming available all the time. And as more jurisdictions continue to reopen, we are going to see more reports coming out. Uh, so we will, our team will be looking at that evidence closely and we'll be updating it as more information come, becomes available. Um, but we know that we need to make decisions now. Uh, we need to make decisions about schools reopening in the next couple of weeks. So this is what we have to date based on what has been published, but certainly we don't know some of the long-term implications, and I'm sure we'll be learning more in the coming uh, weeks and months as more jurisdictions open up. I don't know if I'm um, being too picky on a particular word, but one of the words that get used is super spreader. Mm -hmm. What does super spreader mean as opposed to just spreader, or is it the same thing, or is there is there significance with the word super spreader? You know what, that's a good question. I'm not sure if there's really an agreed upon definition for the term super spreader. Um, typically, we see that used in, in connection to um, outbreaks that have happened uh, in various locations uh, where a number of people are very quickly uh, contract COVID-19 in places like churches. Uh, I believe there's one notable uh, case at a concert or a choir. Um, so I don't know that there's particularly a definition of super spreader. Um, but when we look at the child transmission, the studies of uh, clusters from school and daycare settings, we do see that the transmission amongst children is very low. And that again, it's more likely to be adults that are transmitting it uh, and amongst each other. So I think that's an important thing to think about as we think about how to reopen uh, daycares and schools, mm -hmm. making sure that we keep those measures that we know work in place for the adults, um, both the teachers, staff, and parents that are coming in and out. So things like physical distancing, hand hygiene, mask wearing, we know those things work. And so we should be making sure that we pay really close attention uh, to those being put in place as schools and daycares open up. Just one follow-up on the idea of spreading it. Do, do, does this mean, does what we believe now from your study suggest that kids under 10 are less likely to get the virus or that if they get the virus, they're less likely to cause other people to get it? The latter. So based on the evidence that we looked at in these studies, it looks like children are less likely to transmit it when they, do, uh, when they have contracted the virus. So we have some reports 
um, from France, from Australia, of students with symptomatic COVID-19 going into schools and having uh, close contact with a number of students and teachers. And they seem to spread it to a much lower extent than we see from uh, cases of adults in similar situations. And do we have, I'm sure we do, do we have um, any evidence or any sense, do kids who are under 10, do they manifest the symptoms? Are they, does it hit them as hard as it would to someone who's older or because they're younger somehow, do they not, I mean, uh, listen, every case is different, but as a rule, generally, do they have less impact from the virus? Yeah, so you made a great point. Every case is different, um, but it does look, this isn't something that we looked at specifically in our review, but from other uh, data, we do see that typically children do have more mild cases uh, overall. Um, but again, that doesn't mean there, there are certainly cases of serious cases of COVID-19 and, and deaths in children as well. So we do want to make sure that we take that seriously. Um, but we, but based on this, it looks like their likelihood of transmitting in school and daycare settings is much lower than we might have initially thought, especially uh, based on previous research that we know from uh, influenza and other viruses that are not COVID-19, where kids really do spread it quite quickly. I'm sure any parent um, who's had a child enter daycare or the school system will know. But it does look like COVID-19 is a bit different. And I ask all these questions because one thing I think COVID has done, uh, and it's unfortunate over the last number of months, is it has created a whole lot of confusion about what the science says, because mm -hmm. uh, maybe because it seems to change all the time. I mean, one day we're saying, no, don't close the borders. And the next day we say, no, the borders have to be closed. And then don't wear a mask and then wear a mask. And things seem to be evolving. Well, one of the things we've heard repeatedly is if you are younger, you are still very much likely to get this. Don't be cocky. Don't go out and don't be near your friends. Don't do any of this stuff. And it sounds as though maybe that is, I'm not going to say it's wrong, but it's also one of those things that falls into the, well, maybe what we've heard all along isn't exactly right. Mm -hmm. So one thing I just wanted to clarify, when we say younger children less likely to transmit, we're talking about children under 10. So now, is there a strict cutoff when, you know, someone turns from a nine-year-old to a 10-year-old? Huh. Not likely, but that's just the way that uh, in a number of the research studies that have been done, that's how the researchers have categorized the age group. So it looks like younger, kind of under the age of 10, less likely to transmit. As children get older, getting into the high school age range, it does look like they look more similar to adults. So I think when we see a number of the reports in the news um, about sort of youth transmitting, I think that's typically in high school age children. So we have to kind of keep those two groups separate when we're talking about the evidence that we have so far. Um, but I agree. I think that with COVID-19 being a new virus, this is a totally unprecedented scenario. We've never had something like this before um, that's impacted the world on such a scale. So there is going to be new information that we're learning all the time. And it certainly does create a lot of confusion uh, and potentially mistrust um, as we are given mixed messages on a fairly regular basis. So I think... Um, one thing to really keep in mind with that is the source that the information is coming from. So in the reviews that we have done, what we've done is made sure that we do a comprehensive search of all of the studies that are available. We critically appraise them so that we know which ones are the most trustworthy, which ones have the most rigorous methodology behind them. And so how can we make our recommendations and, and base our decisions on the best available evidence that we have at the time? Um, I think one of the downsides that we've seen in COVID-19 is 
a real rush to put out whatever information uh, anyone has in a really rapid way. Uh, unfortunately, we've started to see now some of those even scientific papers become retracted as there was errors potentially in the way they've been analyzed or the way they've been reported. So I think it's just, again, reminding people to really make sure you're going to trustworthy sources to look for that information. And hopefully the messaging there will be at least a bit more consistent. Well, let's get to the real nut here of, of what why this is so important, um, because if your study is right, and, and I'm assuming it is, and I don't have any reason to suggest that it wouldn't be, it has a massive impact potentially on all these discussions we're having around what do we do with kids and school in the fall. Absolutely. So I think the real take home is uh, certainly that children are not immune from COVID-19. Uh, there, I'm sure, will be cases uh, if schools reopen across the country in the fall. We will see some cases amongst children. We will see some cases in teachers. But I think we can look to the evidence that we have from other jurisdictions to see that this can really be done safely. Uh, and we can also learn from jurisdictions that have reopened unsuccessfully uh, to try to, to learn from what we can do better as we look to moving uh, to reopening in the fall uh, in various locations across the country. Well, and, and with your study, with what you're suggesting, and, and let's just concentrate for a moment on elementary schools, because as you've pointed mm -hmm. out a few times, it's for under 10 kids largely who fall into this. Um, it sounds, tell me if I'm wrong here, if I'm interpreting this incorrectly, but it sounds as though as long as you would keep the teachers, the adults from going to the staff room or from milling about with the other teachers, keep them in their classroom, they're the ones who are likely to be the spreaders. Uh, you stand a much better chance of not having a situation. Yes, I agree. So that's what we—that's what the evidence tells us to date, based on other uh, jurisdictions that have reopened and places like Sweden who've remained open the whole time. So primarily, a huge focus should be on keeping adults separated. So that will be teachers, also staff within the school, so administrative staff, caretaking staff, and another important part of parents. So parents both uh, coming into the school and parents. Uh, in the parking lot and doing drop-off and pickups, so I think they're an important piece of the puzzle as well. That would be, um, if we could do that, even in the elementary schools, I mean, we, we got reports this week that um, of $3.2 billion needed to hire 17,000 new teachers. I mean, it, it, it sounds as though some of those things we may not have to do if we simply follow some common sense things in the elementary school and just say, listen, we can do this for a lot less money and very safely if we just follow what you're telling us. Potentially, yeah. And I haven't looked at that the breakdown of that report in terms of where all the costing comes from. I know certainly things like uh, daily cleaning procedures and things like that will certainly have to um, be kept in place. Uh, and I think in terms of, I know some of it is limiting the size of the classes, which I think is really important from a contract tracing perspective, so that if a child does become infected, there's just less work for public health to do in terms of tracing back who all of their contacts are, uh, and if those people are having to self-isolate or quarantine for two weeks, it just minimizes the impact, the trickle-down effect, um, as other parents may need to self-isolate in a large class. So, so not to say that, I wouldn't say that this research is saying that, that none of those things need to be done. Um, sure. I think there's a, a number of considerations, and I think the more measures we can put in place, the better. Uh, but our research does show that it can be done safely. Of course, uh, and you would understand, I think, um, and, and even people listening right now are saying, yeah, but I, we understand the, the fear because... If, if there was something wrong with the research or if there was something, not even with the research, but if something that we didn't anticipate, 
came up, we could be putting kids at risk if we put them into class like they they have been. How do you, how do you as a researcher, maybe this isn't even your role, but how do you build enough confidence in parents in these results and in this plan, if it was a plan, to really let them latch onto it and believe in it? No, that's a great question. And certainly we acknowledge that we are working with not the highest quality evidence that we would want to be working with before we make large decisions like this. Um, we're all in a position across a number of decisions that are being made right now is weighing the risks and the benefits on either side. Um, and so certainly there are probably some parental uh, individual decisions for different families as to whether or not it's, it is worth even a low level of risk to send children back to school. So families with older adults living in the home or families uh, who have immunocompromised people living in their household, that uh, weighing of the risk and benefit might look very different than it would um, for others. Um, so I think it's that is one piece. Uh, another thing is for parents to just keep in mind that following the regular public health guidelines of physical distancing, hand washing, uh, hand hygiene, wearing masks when going into stores, we know those things also are really important for reducing uh, individual risk and spread of COVID-19 in the community. And so those are things we don't want to lose sight of as well, even as we reopen schools. One, one more thing. We only have a few seconds left here. And to go back to where we started about the super spreader idea and about kids are unlikely to give it to each other as much. What about kids, though, who may get it? Are they more likely or are they as likely to give it to their parents or their older siblings? If they get it at, at or somewhere and then come home, are they not likely because they're kids to spread it to their family or is that just the same as with anyone? So that's something that we don't know yet. That's one of the questions that we do have. It does look like when we look at clusters uh, in the home setting that the index case is primarily, primarily does, so the index case being the first person who contracted the virus is more likely to be adults. Uh, but I think our, uh, our understanding exactly of those transmission dynamics is still a little bit underdeveloped. So that's something that we'll still be watching for. And our team's going to continue to monitor the evidence in this area and we'll be publishing updates uh, as new studies come out and new information is available. It is, uh, it is a fascinating study and it is absolutely one of those ones that um, has a potentially has a huge impact on these massive decisions about school in the fall. Dr. Sarah Neal Stramko, who was co-author of the study, uh, also at McMaster's Department of Health Research Methods, Evidence and Impact. Really, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks, Scott. Have a great day. That is, um, now think about that one for a second. You now have a study. And again, it'll depend on your confidence in in the work, but you have a study that says, theoretically, because kids are not the ones who really spread this as quickly or as strongly or whatever, that if you were to put kids back in school, elementary kids, and just tell the teachers to not be involved with each other, stay away, keep your distance, come into the classroom, stay in the classroom and go home after that, this could potentially be one of the ways around this problem. Now, here's the, here's the fly in that ointment, I suppose. What parent is going to be willing to allow their kid to be the guinea pig? We may believe in this study. This study may be 1,000% correct. This may be exactly what the reality is. But if you're a parent, do you believe we've had so many things in this COVID months that have changed. I, I outlined a few of the masks and borders and this and that and the other, that we one day say one thing and one day say the next. 
what is your level of confidence in any study? And say, this one may be and could well be 100,000% right. Are you confident enough in any study at this point to put your kids in front of it and say, okay, I believe it. Go to school. That's That now may be the trickiest part. That may be the part that causes people the most angst is what am I supposed to believe? And having been not fooled, but having been told one thing and then told the opposite and told one thing and told the opposite enough times, what are we supposed to believe at this point? Enough that we would risk our kids. That's a tough one. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Had we been living in a world that was anywhere close to normal right now, my next guest would not be joining me today. Nothing personal. It's just that she would have been a little bit busy. I don't even know how many miles or kilometers away, but in Tokyo, coaching the Canadian women's basketball team in the Olympics. In fact, I think if I looked at the schedule, they probably would have had a game today. Olympics started last Friday or were supposed to start last Friday. And we would have all been sitting in front of our TV sets cheering for Canada today as they took on America or whomever they were playing in women's basketball. Instead, I think she's still in Dundas doing, I'm not even sure what, filling time right now. Her name is Lisa Tomitis. She joins us now. Lisa, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, thanks, Scott, for having me. Uh, Have you woken up every morning this week thinking, boy, I should be in Tokyo. What am I doing here? Oh, I try not to think like that. (laughs) Um, I think a lot of those feelings passed a few months ago when we knew it wasn't going to be a reality. But certainly as as we approach July 23rd and a year out from when we should be convening in Tokyo, um, you know, those thoughts kind of came back and and just thinking about, you know, what could have been and, and then the opportunity that we have before us for, you know, performing next summer. Uh, and again, not that you're heart, uh, you know, concentrating on this too much, but last Friday night when you should have been marching in the opening ceremonies, what were you doing? Did you think about it then? <laughs> um, no, you know, when I was getting ready to watch our, our first WNBA games with our Canadians, I think that took place on Saturday. So I was getting pretty excited to actually watch a, a basketball game for the first time in months. I can't remember. You were you were at Rio in 2016, so you've had the Olympic experience. I can't remember. Did you march in the opening ceremonies last time, or were you preparing for your games then? No, we didn't. Um, we went to the closing ceremony, uh, but didn't make it to the opening. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a huge deal. We were able to watch it, um, you know, in Canada, not in Canada House, but uh, in the village, in our kind of lounge area. So that was pretty cool, but it certainly isn't anything in comparison to being there live. Would you have intended to do it this time or again, do you have to just, is it so early the competition that you have to just prepare? Yeah, you know what, uh, I haven't even, I haven't thought back about what our schedule would have been like. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure whether we played the day after. Typically, you know, if we play the day after the opening ceremony, we're not going to march in it. But if there was a two-day break after, then we, there was a high potential we could have been there for it. So, Again, a lot of it just depends on, you know, how long is the travel time? How long are you going to be standing on your feet? How long, when are you going to get back to your bed? Um, things like that. So, and then even just the wishes of the athletes, you know, taking all that stuff into consideration. But I, I imagine we would not have been marching in it. Do you think it's easier or harder having been there before, having been to the Olympics, so you know what it's about, you've had that experience 
Is it easier or harder to deal with the fact that what's happened this year that you're not there? I mean, on the one hand, you know what you're missing. On the other hand, you can say, well, I've had the experience. Yeah. You know, had we had we not qualified in February, I think um, that really would have been even more devastating. But knowing that we have qualified and that does give us the birth to Tokyo next summer, I think that was, you know, a little bit of relief that all the work that we had put in and, and having qualified was didn't go out the window. Um, so, you know, I think just, again, looking at it as uh, as just being a delay and more opportunity to get better and 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 the chance to be be an even better team than what we would have been this summer. So really trying to keep it in that perspective and and not that you know it's not going to happen or that we're that we're missing out. It, it, no, but you know what it is t- and I you and I have talked about this before, but it is it is it has to be tough because as a coach you are gearing your team you're planning everything around peaking at the time like right now this would have been the time you would have hopefully been at your absolute best and your entire schedule is built towards building to this and all of a sudden they throw the brakes in there and you say okay guess what we get to start this whole thing again i don't know if that's easy because it allows you to really plan ahead how you want to do everything or if finding the you know the whatever the motivation to start up again because you've put so much into it already is tough yeah, I mean, again, both sides of the coin. Really tough for for those who are nearing the ends of their careers, who are, who, you know, from their perspective, we're planning on life after basketball, um, and we're planning to move on after this summer. And now to all of a sudden be like, oh my goodness, you know what? I've, you know, there's another year ahead of me. Do I want to do this? I want to, but now how do I change my plans and and prepare for a, a bit of a different path? Um, Honestly, from a team perspective, um, we do have some unfortunate injuries right now. You know, we're going through some individual meetings and, and, and staying in contact with our athletes and, and our staff. And and the potential is that we could be much better next year in comparison to this year. Um, we had some things come up with, with some key players just, just over the past six months that I think would have significantly impacted our performance had we, had we been playing right now. So... Um, maybe that's a bit of a silver lining for us. Um, but yeah, to, to have all the planning kind of go by the wayside now, you know, the, for the first little while we were like, what are we going to do here? Like, how are we going to stay engaged with our, with our team? How are we going to continue to improve without being able to be face to face or in a gym? So we, we've had to do some, some serious thinking around that. And yet also balancing the needs of the athletes and, and, you know, having a break is, probably a really good thing for some of them mentally and physically. So um, it, it is a big balancing act and, and yet don't want to lose the, the momentum and, and what we have built up till now. And I don't want to add extra <laughs> to your plate, but <laughs> I know this, I'm not the first person to bring this up. We are right now in a real golden era for basketball in Canada. I mean, the Raptors are yeah. the defending champions and there are a ton of Canadians playing in the WNBA and a ton playing in the NBA. And you guys won the Pan Am gold a few years back. Um, I would guess expectations were and are going to be pretty high whenever you do get onto the Olympic court. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, heading into the qualifier in February and, and knowing the, the top teams that we had to compete in and be successful against uh, their medal hopefuls for Tokyo. And we performed very well against them. And, um, you know, I think 
there was a, an article written by a, a FIBA expert shortly after the Olympic qualifying window in February that essentially said of the 12 teams that have qualified, there's um, 10 medal contenders or nine medal contenders. So it just goes to show you, you know, the... You were one of them? The parody, yeah, we were mentioned in there. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, that, that's a huge step forward for us as well, just to be in that conversation around meddling at the Olympics. Um, you know, there were times when I thought we'd never get to this day and and be in that conversation. And so that's super cool. But like you said, with that comes a high level of expectation around, you know, what we're able to do on in that given week or two when we have to be at our best. So it's, um, yeah, there, there's a lot. I mean, when I think back to... 2012 when we qualified and went to the London Olympics very little expectation on us other than you know the fact that we qualified and that was fantastic and finishing top eight was remarkable and and just the the joy and the fun that the team had uh in comparison to 2016 and now 2020 the the relative expectation on us is significantly higher and with that comes pressure and um yeah, I mean, again, we've we've all heard the saying, uh, pressure is privilege, and, um, you know, that's how we're trying to embrace it. But, again, I think there's a, also a level of confidence that has really grown with our group over the course of the past number of years and, and seeing success internationally and continuing to continuing to climb those, those FIBA rankings has been really awesome to be a part of and, and fun to watch our players continue to grow and, and develop and, and see the young ones come up and, and be pushing some of the veterans and yeah, it is, like you said, we're, we're right in a sweet spot for Canadian basketball, especially on the women's side. For you though, I mean, as a, as a personal thing, I, I'm not sure when you talk about pressure, I'm not sure how you haven't had some sort of breakdown yet with just the, cause you, I mean, you had the qualifying in February that you had to deal with that pressure and then your university team in Saskatchewan went all the way through, won the national championship this March. And then you would have had this, uh, there comes a point when surely, you know, <laughs> even though you want to be in Tokyo, a break may not be the worst thing in the world for you. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, I think, um, it has been a while since I've had this kind of a, a mental break and just getting off the hamster wheel a little bit and, mm. and gaining some perspective and, and having a, a chance to really, you know, work on some um, professional development and, and connections and watching other people um, coach and, and watching other teams compete and play and prepare. I think that's been really good for me. And um, yeah, just taking a step back and, and, you know, hopefully before too long coming back at it with, with a bit of a, a fresh mind and, and fresh approach. So that's never a bad thing for sure. Um, because yeah, there, there's, there is definitely a high level of pressure and um, you know, but we were ready, we we're ready to, to take it on um, head on full force. So like you said, it's something that we've been preparing for, for a while and we were ready for it, but we'll be, uh, we'll be super prepared for next year when we get the opportunity as well. Well, and uh, you know, touch, I'm touching wood right now and crossing my fingers <laughs> that uh, that we are doing this next year. That we're not having the same conversation in July next totally. year because we can't. Because uh, then, you know, then it goes from being just sort of maybe a little disappointment that it was delayed to crushing. Because oh, yeah. again, we're right at that time when you can be competitive. Yeah, you got that right. Um, yeah, hopefully we're not talking next year at this time, and and we're we're in the village and and we're getting ready to compete again and and you know, things are looking good. So hopefully that's the case. 
out, out of curiosity, as I let you go, do you have somewhere, I know you must have somewhere in your place at where you live that uh, you have your medals and your trophies and everything else from youth sports championships and everything else. Do you have a place <laughs> set aside for where the Olympic medal will go someday? Are you that much of an optimist or are you a realist and go, no, I'm just going to jinx it if I think about that? <laughs> uh, I don't go there. I do, yeah, it's... Um... Yeah, no, there, there's definitely, uh, there is not a, a place for the medal quite yet. Um, <laughs> I'm very much a realist, and, and when it happens, awesome, and, and we'll celebrate it. But And as you know, coaches don't get medals at, at the Olympics, only the athletes. Oh, do. yeah, so, I forgot I forgot um, that part. That's a, That sucks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have the picture. The picture will be framed in a, in a good spot for sure. Somebody will, will forge you a medal, I'm sure. They'll find a way to get something for you. Uh, listen, I, next time, as I say, next time hopefully it is, well, hopefully we talk before then, but next time it is when you're in Tokyo playing and uh, and doing well. But listen, I, I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for doing this, Lisa. Thank you, Scott. You take care. That is Lisa Tomitis, head coach of the Canadian women's basketball team, uh, what should have been the Canadian Olympic women's basketball team, but for COVID and the delay, the Olympics would have been on right now. You would have been watching, your TV would have been on right now, probably watching Olympic biathlon or pentathlon or some other event that you never otherwise would give five seconds of attention to. You'd be doing that right now. Instead, we're talking to Lisa. Always happy to talk to Lisa, but we wish it was uh, with the Olympics going on. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Led Zeppelin. Many people love Led Zeppelin. I love Led Zeppelin. If you're a music fan of a certain era, you probably love Led Zeppelin. But Led Zeppelin, you know, for Led Zeppelin music to be Led Zeppelin music, it has to be written by Jimmy Page or Robert Plant, right? Well, hold on one second, because there is a group out there. The name doesn't help. The name really doesn't help. They're called Funk Turkey. <laughs> It, it doesn't add a load of credibility to this, but they're a group on, it's a YouTube channel called Funk Turkey. And they've done a little experiment here. They've taken a few computer algorithms, one called Markov, one's a Markov chain, one's Lyric Rip, Lyric dot Rip, a few other things. And using a artificial intelligence and computers, they have created new Led Zeppelin. Now, you say to yourself, well, you know, okay, what is it like sounding like old Pong? Sounds no. We're gonna play a little clip. This is the song they created using artificial intelligence, not written by Led Zeppelin. The song is called Mountain Man. The lyrics, the one flaw in this is that the lyrics are basically nonsensical, which makes it even more enjoyable in some weird ways. But here is artificial intelligence creating new Led Zeppelin. Take a listen. Zeppelin. That's what they're calling it. Made up Led Zeppelin move. 
music using artificial intelligence. I want to bring in Eric Alper, who's a publicist, a music commentator, a man who describes himself as a shameless idealist, which may be perfect for this discussion. Eric, thanks for doing this today. No problem. Just keep in mind, I'm not really here. This is all created by AI using costume <laughs> reviews I've done with CHML. So I hope that this goes off well. Uh, well, we'll see if if the if your words are as nonsensical as Robert Plant's lyrics in that one, we may have trouble here. But uh, you know, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, Eric, but that's not half bad. It's not half bad. In fact, if you were to tell me that that was an old, forgotten B side from 1972, it would probably sell a couple of million copies and fool a lot of people. And I think that's a really scary thing about AI and and the use of, of technology when it comes to music is that, you know, we're already fully aware that, especially on the Billboard Hot 100, there's very little humans on those tracks, uh, the guitars and the bass, even if they exist, they're all computerized. The drums are perfectly timed by the millisecond. The real only human voice might be the singer, but that's also transcribed and put through machines like auto-tune, auto-tune. And, yep. and everything else. So, you know, we're just in the next step, and I welcome our new musical overlords to the to the system. Well, I'm I'm honestly shocked it's taken this long for someone to try this. And I'm sure there have been other ones who have tried this before, but maybe not with this success. This, to me, I, I'm, I'm very surprised we haven't heard this before. Yeah, I think part of it is that, you know, when, when drum machines first came along and the fair, Fairlight uh, keyboard came along in around 1981 or so, there were a lot of musician unions around the world that banned those instruments. In fact, the BBC in England forbid any song to be created by machines or computers to be on their playlist. So they had a lot of walls to break if you were using that technology. Um, they just had certain hits that couldn't be denied and helped usher in the new wave era of Duran Duran and the Pet Shop <laughs> yeah, Boys gonna... and all sorts of stuff. So, you know, this is, I, I, I think we're not so strongholded by the use of technology, but I'm surprised too. But I think part of it is, uh, I, I think AI still scares a lot of people. I think that there's just a lack of information on really what it, it truly is and, and how it can fall into the wrong hands. Yeah, I'm surprised that the BBC would have that because pretty much everybody from the 80s British invasion, the second wave of the British invasion, that's what they did. That was how they made their... It, it takes synthesizers and electric drums out of the 80s and all you have left is... I don't know what you have left, not much. You. you 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 have don't worry be happy by Bobby McFerrin. Um, <laughs> That's true. But, but you know, like like consider consider where they've come from. You know, they they wouldn't. Uh, you know, there were a lot of, of recording studios in the fifties and sixties and seventies that you had to be part of the union. They didn't like computers. Computers were pretty scary up until Apple, you know, went into the mainstream in the late eighties. So you know, music has always been something that is about the human emotion. It's about the human experience. It's about the people that are singing the songs, having real life experiences behind it, putting into music. And that's a mental, that's a mental state for some people to, to, you know, not being able to get over. But as we're seeing now, you know, just by you and I talking about it, you know, we treat it like a little bit of a joke, but I wouldn't be surprised if in the next year or two, we might start to see some Billboard Hot 100 hits fully created by AI. In fact, we're seeing pop stars now use it in ways that 
you know, we would probably never even think of five years ago. Absolutely. I mean, up until today, I thought the only group or thing that was able to really imitate Led Zeppelin was Greta Van Vliet. And now I know that that's not really the case. Um, oh, and if, a slam to Greta Van Vliet. And, and if they can do it for Zeppelin, though, if I mean, if computers and AI can do it to Led Zeppelin, uh, I'm presuming they could do it with literally any other performer. Totally. And, it, and you know, a lot of these pop performers that are using it, they're not using it to create the songs from scratch. And I think that's an important distinction is that, you know, for for singers who want to get into the music industry or who want to create music, um, they may not have the formal education of, you know, playing the wind instruments or classical musical instruments or even a guitar or drums. So, you know, in the age of the coronavirus and who knows how long this is going to last, this actually might be the best thing that ever happened to them because they're enabling to um, have AI create a beat or maybe a melody on the guitar or keyboards and build from there so that the artist is still writing their own lyrics. They're still writing their music. They're just using it on like, you know, a nice clean bass. But as we've seen in the past, even artists like David Bowie were using this back in the early 1990s and 2000s, putting in various novels and historical fiction books um, and spouting out all new sorts of, of rhymes and lyrics and, and paragraphs that he would be using for his own lyrics. So it's a nice little kickstart for somebody that's, you know, not afraid of using that technology. The difference, Eric, with this, though, I think, is that in all the cases you've talked about before, it was the artists who have used the equipment and the technology to further the artist's view or the artist's interpretation here you theoretically they in this one they took robert plant's voice they took a bunch of different songs got all the words and the sounds and everything into the computer and the computer then did what it wanted you can't tell me that instead of paying or getting robert plant you couldn't hire some anonymous singer who's starving playing in coffee shops who's got an okay voice and say tell you what we're going to give you 50 grand sing us a bunch of different songs, a bunch of different riffs, a bunch of different notes, a bunch of different words, and you're done forever. You're cut out of it. And you could now just have the producer, forget the artist, you can just produce whatever you want now without an artist even being part of the equation. Yeah, we've seen that before. In fact, in the, in the, uh, in the dance house scene of the early 1990s, there was a group called Black Box. And they had a number of, of huge hits, including Everybody, Everybody, and a couple of other ones. Um, and it turns out that the woman in the video who was, you know, drop-dead gorgeous um, wasn't the one on the record. It happened to be somebody um, that was larger in terms of size, um, didn't have a lot of, of you know, great personality, but she had a phenomenal voice. It took years for people to realize that the woman in the video wasn't the one on the record. So you can fool some of the people some of the time, but as Bob Marley said, you can't fool all the people all the time. And I think that there's just too many people involved that are willing to give up the ghost per se and, and, and share those secrets. But I agree with you. There might be some record labels out there that will be like, you know what, you've got a huge fan base on TikTok. You got 30 million followers. You're going to shut up. We're going to pay you a million dollars a year and we're going to create songs for you. And you're just going to be in the video. Yeah, and, and it's a great example you used. Also, I remember in one of the Meatloaf videos, I think it was I Would Do Anything for Love, they had a really gorgeous woman who was singing but wasn't really singing. And, yeah, um, and, and you know, yeah, Millie and, Vanilli. Yeah. Oh, oh, totally, and I was just going to bring that up where, you know, they didn't even sing the vocals. They had 
no part in the experience or in the production of the album. And look how long it was. It was almost 15, 16 years until somebody realized that, you know, just how much they fooled people and they had to give back their Grammy. But the music industry has a very, very, very short memory and they will sell out anybody for a hit record. So I wouldn't be surprised if as we're talking, there's literally songs that are being created with AI right now that, you know, are soon to be on the pop charts. We just won't know it. But again, again, the difference though being that with Millie Vanilli, and they're sort of the perfect example, the most egregious example, the public was told they were singing, that they were the artists. But if you didn't put a person in front of there, if you didn't, if you didn't put someone out front and say this person is singing and essentially lie to the public and just said, here's a song, does it matter? Yeah, because I think that, you know, the 8 to 15, 16-year-olds that are on Instagram and TikTok and, and are creating the next wave of, of pop superstars and music super uh, superstars, they don't just want the music. They want to know everything about that artist. In fact, you know, if you're playing to that crowd and you play pop music and you're Ariana Grande or Taylor Swift or or even, you know, Justin Bieber if you're not posting daily about your, your life, people think that you're dead, you know, your fans get angry. (laughs) So I think that you have to have that persona behind you because, you know, one thing I've learned in the last, in the last 25 years working in the music industry and especially seeing the rise of social media, anybody can like a song, but you have to love the artist in order to become the lifelong fan that artists want. And you do that by sharing your personality, by telling people about your day, both good and bad, sharing photos of, of what you're doing, you know, every couple of hours. So I think that that's going to be a hurdle for these AI companies is that, yeah, maybe you can create a perfect pop song in the style of the Beatles, but you won't have the humor of Ringo Starr behind it that made people love this band even more. This is not just a music thing. I mean, it was, I don't know, a year ago maybe that I saw a um, a deep fake video that was made and it was Steve Buscemi's face on Jennifer Lawrence's body. It was greatly <laughs> disturbing. It was funny. But um, yeah. but at the time, there was great concern actors. And then there was one on, uh, on The Tonight Show where I think, um, uh, what's his name, from Saturday Night Live, and they kept putting different people, Arnold Schwarzenegger and Al Pacino's face oh, yeah. on him when he was yeah. doing impressions. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. it, 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 the question or the issue was raised with a number of actors that, again, we could create a library of actors, of, of faces, and we don't necessarily, because of computers now, we don't really even need you anymore to act. When you're long gone, we can still have you being in our movies. That, that has to be, whether it's a musician or an actor, that has to be really concerning for you that you could be being cut right out of the process here. Yeah, and it's also, you know, we saw a little bit with uh, Netflix, The Irishman movie, where yes, you know, yes. Uh, Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, um, they used technology to make them look 40 years younger. And, you know, from my perspective in watching that film, it was brilliant. It was like, it, it was almost like their next film right after Taxi Driver in some cases of it. But if you're, uh, if, if you're an actor or an actress or somebody that makes their living based on being recognizable and bankable, you might be having something in your contract now um, that says that the film studio owns your likeness and your voice even after you passed away. So that's going to be, um, you know, something I think for the studios to to contend with as well. And yeah, absolutely. What's what's to stop somebody from going in the studio? 
you know, what's to stop somebody like Tony Bennett from going into the studio for a couple of hours, reciting the alphabet in different measures and different tones and different ways and have the next, you know, 25 albums for the next. He lives forever. I'll be, yeah. I mean, we're seeing it now with holograms. This, this might not be, and, and you know, it's funny because, you know, while I hear myself talk about it and talking to you, it's like, we're part of this generation that is always really tough for new technology to land in the comfortableness of our psyche. But, you know, again, when, when, you know, the, the next up and coming fan base of music or films or the next entertainment consumers, I don't know if they've got so much of a concern about it because they're used to living in front of a screen. I think if you're a politician, I think this definitely scares oh. you because now anything could be put into your mouth and then you've got to apologize for it later. Yeah, and not just the politician. I mean, literally anybody who's in the public eye at all could now have words put in their mouth very convincingly uh, that become a problem. I will have a couple of minutes here, and I want to go back to something you said, though, because I also thought it was really a, a difficult part of this discussion, and that is that we have always heard from the dawn of time that music especially is an extension of the artist's soul and their psyche, and it's deeply emotional, and it's their life experience and all the rest. I listened to this song. Clearly, there's no emotion from a computer and no life experience from a computer. Does this does this undermine and disprove what we've long held that you need to have all that stuff in music? Um, you know, it goes back to that really great book. You know, <laughs> what do electric she- you know what do electric sheep dream of when they're sleeping? You know, does does music have to have a soul and does it have to have that human emotion behind it? And I think it does. But I'm older. You know, I know what experiences Robert Plant and his crew um, had to create that awesome Led Zeppelin music. I know that the Beatles were big in the fashion world and took a lot of drugs in order to create Sgt. Pepper. Um, When you are younger and you just don't have that knowledge, does, does feeling and does emotion and does a soul mean something to you when you're growing up with... Um, you know, knowing about these artists based on what they're telling you through a screen rather than maybe reading about it in Rolling Stone. And I, and I don't take that lightly. And I don't say that lightly. You know, if I wanted to find out more about an artist, I had to read about them and, and, and follow their words and read their quotes. I'm not so sure that they're getting their, you know, that this new generation is, is consuming entertainment and knowledge in the same way. So maybe it doesn't have to have a soul as much as you and I think it does or a lot of the listeners right now. No, but I would think that if it really does latch on in a big, big way, it, it it's going to lead to an inevitable cultural class, but clash between the cultural elites and the regular folks who just say, well, I like it, so who cares if it's good or bad or made by a computer or a person? I just like it. That's the exact same philosophy that older people have when they're listening to their kids' music. It's not as good as the music that I listen to, and that will go on for generations and generations. Yeah, we've just expedited it and sped it up by making computers now the topic of our rants and raves and get off my lawn, (laughs) you young punk kind of discussions. Eric Alper, publicist, music commentator. I love shameless idealist. I'll always throw that in. It's um, it's a great way to great way great thing to have as a philosophy for life. Eric, always appreciate this. Thanks for doing it. Great, thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. Uh, Yeah, that is um, Will. I don't know if you still have that song up there. If you still have Mountain Man loaded up. Um, but if you do, why don't you send us out? This is again, this is a computer generated artificial intelligence Led Zeppelin. You decide if you like this or not.
Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.